This is Car Expert. It doesn't feel like a Mustang, but it feels Mustang-esque. This gives you an idea of how advanced this company really is. It is doing the sorts of things that Tesla did quite some time ago for a lot less money. It feels like BMW is doing stuff for the sake of it now. It's deliberately making its cars slightly awkward, just so we'll talk about them. Hello, Mike Costello. Hello, Mandy Turner. How are you? I'm fabulous, thank you. And hello to you, Scott Colley. Hello, Mandy and Mike. Mandy, one of these days you'll say my name first. <laughs> Technically, uh, no, yeah, you should have been first because Collie and Costello, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you but been a- first. age before beauty, as they say. <laughs> Maybe I'll stay second then. Mm. <laughs> hey, Scully, this week your hair's being messed up. You've been driving a rather nice convertible. I have. I've been behind the wheel of a Mercedes E350 convertible, big, luxurious, elegant thing. It's pale blue with a navy blue roof and then a oh. white leather interior with white wood trim. It's proper Whoa. like Florida retiree spec. Um, I showed it to my girlfriend and she said, I can't come in that. I'm not your third wife, <laughs> which is genuinely a quote from her. Um, but I've been thinking a bit about convertibles just in general because – like we had really beautiful weather in Melbourne over the weekend relative to what we're used to. It was 20 degrees. It was sunny both days. It was convertible weather. But the whole time I was in it, even with the windows up, with Mercedes clever air deflected tech going, with heated seats and neck warmers going, the whole time I kind of felt like I just wasn't quite comfortable. And I think it's something that I've noticed in a lot of convertibles now. Lexus LC500 I adored but I'd probably buy the coupe. Mazda MX-5 I love, but I always get out looking like a a drowned rat because my head's up in the wind. The more I drive convertibles, the more I think it would take something really incredibly special to get me to buy one because so much of the time they're just compromised. And then when you do take the roof down, I don't know that it's all it's cracked up to be. Um, I love convertibles. And look, I am a very pale, heavily freckled ginger man with a bald spot. (laughs) So... In, 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 in across across my attributes, I am not uh, somebody who is particularly well geared towards driving a topless car. Um, that being said, every time I have a convertible, um, I absolutely love my time in it. I, I ride motorbikes as well, and I suppose maybe that has a connection. But I think that in this age of we're quite disconnected from cars today, electric power steering systems, electric drivetrains, lots of driver assist aids. We're very, very isolated from what's actually going on. And I think there is a real kind of throwback appeal to driving a convertible because you do feel like you're much more part of the elements. You're more one with the car. You sense what's going on around you a lot more for obvious reasons. And I think that's a really wonderful thing and hard to replicate. And I also worry that moving forward into the battery electric future, we're not seeing a lot of topless electric cars as yet uh, because they're already quite heavy as it is. And then you add all the weight of the batteries as well and they kind of lose any sense of sportiness. But I think to myself, for some of these massive American convertibles of the 60s and 70s, the Lincoln Continentals and things, they seem so conducive to EV. I really hope that when we start seeing the electric uh, convertibles start to emerge, they'll be as cool as their predecessors. But in a general sense, I am all about convertibles. I love them. And, um, Scully, if you want to swap cars at some point, <laughs> if you want to if you want to have a crack in my MG ZSEV or my Ford Everest <laughs> and toss me the keys, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be open to it, okay? <laughs> uh, yeah, it is. As convertibles go, it is a lovely one. And I'm not holding against the E-Class the fact it is a convertible. But it's just something I've been thinking about recently recently. 
Moco, when they go electric, maybe it improves because all those batteries in the floor should keep it nice and solid rather than making it all wobbly like a lot of modern convertibles still are. I think maybe that's the future. Here's one thing I don't like about convertible driving. Like I, I do like it, but I don't like the attention that is drawn onto the driver because you're you're on show everywhere. You don't have windows or a roof to hide behind, or even that doesn't work. You know, yeah. You've got you've got an old classic Porsche convertible, and you yeah, don't like but- attention. What the hell are you doing? <laughs> like it's, it's OMG three five six. I don't. I don't believe you. You love being the center of attention. Oh, I, I didn't buy that car to get the attention. I, I bought it because I love the look of it. But um, I, that's one thing I just don't like. I, I, I sent all these eyes on me, and I just. But Mandy, that's the price you pay. Another question for you about your Porsche: Can it be called a convertible if you can't put a roof on it, or is it just permanently converted at that point? <laughs> I don't know. Minster, I think. Well, yeah, because you can take the, the the roof off completely, like remove it from the car altogether. Right. Um, I've never done that because just in case, you know, in Melbourne weather, it'll be sunny and then raining the next minute. So um, I've, I've never done that. But that's a very good point you make. Yeah. Let's do this week's car news with Jack Quick. G'day, Jack. Hey there, Mandy. How are you? Very good, thank you. Well, yet another polarising BMW has been revealed this week, the 2023 XM Plug-In Hybrid SUV. Um, Give us the details on this and then we can maybe talk about its looks. Yes, we'll get to that. (laughs) Uh, So, yes, that's right. Uh, BMW has revealed its brand-new XM Plug-In Hybrid SUV, which is, in fact, the second bespoke M vehicle since the original M1, the the sports car that you might have heard of before. It's uh, The XM is confirmed to be arriving locally in the first half of next year, and it's going to be priced from almost $300,000 it's a lot (laughs) and um that's only that's only the start because there's um an even even powerful version called the label red um which is coming later in the year which dials everything up to 11. Uh, so this uh base model i say base model entry level uh xm uh, is powered by a 4.4 liter twin turbo v8 um, with an electric motor that has a total system output of 480 kilowatts and 800 newton meters of torque. And um, as that, uh, the label red, which I brought up just before, which is the high performance model, that t- dials the engine and electric motor um, outputs up to 550 kilowatts and 1,000 newton meters of torque. Wow. <laughs> and uh, both of these models are going to be uh, are linked up to a, a 25.7 uh, kilowatt hour lithium ion, ion battery pack, um, which makes it the, the plug-in hybrid system. And it's, uh, BMW claims uh, the XM is going to have an electric range of um, 80 to 88 um, Ks of electric range according to WLTP testing. And um, I'm going to quickly just talk about the looks and then I'll, I'll uh, open the discussion a little bit further just to see your thoughts. Um, but the the styling is very concept-like and it's very faithful to the concept that, that was shown off, I think, at the, towards the start of the year, both inside and out. Um, on the outside, it has the stacked uh, hexagonal uh, dual exhaust tips. And there's also a choice 
a choice of a 21, 22, and 23 alloy, uh, 23 inch alloy wheels. And um, all the, the pictures of the car, um, in the press images have these, um, gold, uh, accents and it also has, um, an illuminated grill. But I'm going to open it up a bit now, guys. What do you think of the BMW XM? You know what? It's funny. It, it sort of seems like every time a new BMW comes out, people line up to just crap all over the design. Um, and I'm going to go the other way. I actually dig this car. I think it's great. I think BMW M, as Jack said before, it's only the second time BMW M specifically has had a car all of its own rather than a derivative for something else. And there's not a lot of point in doing that and making it look like every other BMW. What, what the hell's the point of that? You may as well just have an X6. The only way this car makes any sense is if it looks completely unlike anything else on the road. And if that's the mission, then BMW has definitely succeeded. It's very edgy. It's very angular. I think it has a terrific stance. Very, very interesting light signatures. I love the stacked tailpipes at the rear. Mm. Um, you know, I think the images themselves do it a lot of justice because they really show off the sort of proportions, the squat stance, that very long wheelbase and short overhangs. Um, I actually think it's a pretty arresting looking car. No, it's not an E46 M3 manual. So it's not the sort of car that classic BMW fanboys are going to drool over, but it is the sort of car that BMW M probably needs moving forward into, into the future. And I think on a design sense, at least, the company is knocked it out of the park. But I get a pretty strong sense that I'm probably in the minority when I say that. Yeah, I, I have to strongly disagree. Um, I, I understand the need for cars to stand out. And I, I do agree with you that BMW is trying stuff and that's good. It feels like BMW is doing stuff for the sake of it now. It's deliberately making its cars slightly awkward or slightly ugly or like slightly out there with over-the-top detailing just so we'll talk about them. And I get that as a strategy, but I think it's a little bit disappointing that with a clean sheet of paper, with a new brief for what the designers could have done, they weren't able to combine some really arresting elements like those gold trim bits, like the twin level headlights, like the grill, with just a, a more beautiful silhouette. Because as it stands, it's kind of like, I almost see it like one of those brutalist buildings that, yes, it catches your eye and, and yes, it is like visually impressive, but it's not impressive because it's beautiful. It's just impressive because it's it's a big bully of a thing. And I don't... I don't think I like that even in a high-performance $300,000 SUV. Interesting. I'm actually agreeing with Moco there. So we're in the majority now, Moco. There you go. <laughs> uh, no, no, no. I like to be the uh, the minority. I like to be the one person with the co contrasting opinion. Right? <laughs> Stop agreeing with me. Start agreeing with Scully more. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to move on now, Jack. Uh, LDV uh, is bringing three EVs to Australia by November, which is actually next month. Yeah, yeah exactly. Very soon and very big news um, from the Chinese automaker. Uh, it's announced it's bringing three electric vehicles and uh, one of them is going to be the first um, electric ute in Australia, which I think is really exciting, super-duper big news. This ute is going to be called the ET60, and it's going to be initially available in uh, 4x2 dual cab guys, and um, it's going to be uh, mated to an 88.5 uh, lithium-ion battery pack. And uh, claimed range uh, for the ET60 is going to be uh, 330 kilometres according to WLTP testing. 
I think the Ute is going to be my favourite, but I'll I'll ask you guys that question later on. But um, next, moving on to the second EV that LDV is bringing in November is called I might butcher this, but it's called the the Mifa Nine, uh, which is a, a, a people mover, an electric people mover based on the petrol powered um, G90 that was recently launched in China. Um, initially, um, the Mifa 9 is going uh, to be coming to Australia as a seven-seat model, and then there's also going to be an eight-seat model uh, launching sometime in early next year. And um, both of these models are going to be powered, are going to be powered by a 90 kilowatt-hour uh, lithium-ion battery pack with a claimed uh, 440 kilometers of LTP, uh, WLTP range, should say. And uh, last of all, uh, the least exciting in my eyes, but <laughs> as the the e deliver, um, which is an electric version of the uh, deliver van, and it's av- going to be available in a long wheelbase, uh, mid and high roof uh, variants, and there's also going to be um, a cab chassis variant too. And uh, so this electric van also obviously swaps the the diesel engine um, for an, uh, an electric motor and an 88.5 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery pack. But I want to know, guys, uh, which is your uh, which are the most looking forward to out of the three uh, EVs coming down under uh, next month? Yeah, well, I mean, you're dead right, Jack, when you say that the Ute's going to get people talking. Obviously, a big question that's asked is how the heck is Australia going to get to net zero by 2050 if our love of diesel-powered dual-cab Utes goes unabated? And cars like the ET60 are absolutely essential to that. But I think it's probably going to cost about $70,000 based on the price differential that the New Zealand market has, where the ET60 is already on sale compared to the diesel. The price golf, if you calculate that into the Australian context, it's going to be about 70K. So with that in mind, I I think probably the E-Deliver 9 is actually the most interesting for the market. And that's because we're seeing a number of electric vans rolling out now. We've got E-Transit and E-Transit Custom from Ford. We've got E-Veto from Mercedes-Benz. Peugeot is going to bring its electric vans next year. Volkswagen is desperately trying to expedite the launch of the ID Cargo electric van for 2023 as well. Um, and I think that space, we're starting to hear a number of last mile Uh, focused fleet companies and delivery firms really want to electrify quickly. And we're going to see a lot of these electric vans on the road in the near future. So I think it may not be the most exciting product in and of itself, but what it represents as a, as a real sort of turning point for the market, the E-Deliver 9 could actually be a massive deal for LTV. And in a wider sense, it's kind of emblematic of the fact that China is just dominating electric cars in general. Now it's More than 50% of the world's EVs come out of China. About a quarter of vehicles sold in China every year now are EVs. They're miles ahead of anybody else, and this is kind of emblematic of that. I think it's impressive that LDV has committed as hard as it has, as quickly as it has here. I know that these cars have been in New Zealand and other markets for a little while, but a lot of car makers with their electric rollouts have gone, we're going to bring four examples of one specific model to the country and we're going to trial it with a certain set of fleets. And if that works, then maybe we'll think about doing more. LDV obviously hasn't done this without doing its research, but the fact it's bringing three separate models, they're all models that are going to appeal to fleet buyers or people who maybe don't necessarily need the headline specs of the Ford Lightning we're going to talk about later, but do want to cut their emissions on their daily you know, run in the ute. So that there's real world benefits to them. And it's doing it in a way that is very just down to business. These are the cars. Here's when they're coming. You'll be able to buy them from these dealers. 
I, I think that no-nonsense approach and the fact they've committed hard is to be commended and it's something we'd love to see from more car makers. I know we don't know what supply will be like just yet and that obviously may change that. But for LDV to commit and just say, here is a full range, here's when they're on sale, come talk to us and we'll sell you one, is a refreshing change from how electric vehicles are being sold in Australia at the moment. Okay, uh, into our next story, Jack. It's probably been a long time since ANCAP has changed the way they test cars, but they are going to be making it a little bit harder for manufacturers from next year. Yes, Maddie. It's been a few years since we've seen any changes um, from ANCAP uh, testing protocols. Um, but the, um, ANCAP has detailed its 2023 uh, test protocols that are going to replace uh, the 2020 to 2022 protocols. And I'm probably going to hear me say protocols a lot in this, but these are, are all shared um, with its counterpart, Euro ANCAP, which you might have heard of as well. Um, so the thresholds um, in each of the, the four main areas to score um, a five-star um, ANCAP safety rating uh, are going to be a minimum of 80% in adult and child occupant protection, um, 70% in vulnerable user uh, road user protection, and that is up from 60%, and there's also and uh, 70% for the safety assist uh, protocols. So um. In addition to that, in order to have a maximum score, um, cars will need to be fitted with an AEB system uh, that's capable of braking for a motorbike in an intersection turning situation, um, part of the new 2023 protocols. And there's also going to be um, harder pedestrian and cyclist testing um, with also with, a, with more AMB, AEB and safe exit system tests. And then also there's going to be um, AEB head-on and junction cross tests, uh, crossing tests, should say, um, child presence detection tests, and last of all, there's going to be um, vehicle submergence testing, which I think is super duper quirky and kind of cool and very um, relevant right now in regard to all of the flooding that's happening all around Australia, and that's also in um, all of these things that I've just mentioned. And there's also small tweaks as well, which I can re uh, read in more detail uh, if you read the story. Um, but I want to know, guys, is this uh, thorough enough? Are these changes thorough enough or is it too thorough? I think these changes may end up seeing some brands stop pushing their cars as hard to be tested. Um, more and more, and we've already seen it with cars like the Mitsubishi Express and even the Hyundai Palisade before it was updated, it's getting harder to get a five-star ANCAP rating even if your car is physically very safe. And by adding more of these requirements, I understand they match what's required elsewhere in the world as well. But because Euro ANCAP and ANCAP are aligned, cars that are sourced out of America or parts of Japan don't necessarily need to be built with those same systems. And if we're a small market, there's no real sort of incentive for car makers to develop them just for us. Wouldn't surprise me if some of these mean that car makers go, well, we're sourcing the car from America. We know physically it's very safe. We know all its systems work, but because it doesn't check this box, it won't get five stars. And therefore, we're not necessarily going to give ANCAP cars for testing unless they really come after us and they want to get them. I hope that's not the case, but I do think we're going to see more of it as systems like this become the core of what the safety rating is about. Yeah, I think you touched on it pretty well there, Scully. Um, I think it's probably something that could be brought up in the conversation piece. I think you wrote an op-ed on this a while back, but 
potentially exploring the idea of actually separating ANCAP into two different distinct rating structures, one for how a car actually handles a collision and one for how its driver assist systems work. Because the fundamental flaw in ANCAP now is if you uh, have a car that has excellent crash integrity but is missing some driver assist features, its score might be two or three stars. And that kind of connotes that it's made of paper and it will kill you the instant that you so much as, you know, hit a curb, which often isn't the case. And so these organisations like NCAP and NCAP are only really useful so long as manufacturers work with them. They don't have the budgets to buy every single car they test. They often require the manufacturers to donate the vehicles that are tested. They're given a VIN list and they select at random two vehicles from a big pool so they can't be modified or whatever. But they're still, depending on the on the on the, the fact that car brands recognise the marketing value in having that five-star sticker. So if they do go too far and alienate too many car brands, they'll actually hurt themselves as an organisation. Um, but then again, these features are becoming increasingly commonplace. They are sourced from the same suppliers, generally the likes of Bosch and others, and there's no reason why vehicles shouldn't be having these technologies. Although, of course, then you enter the, the other thorny argument, which is, well, how much cost does it add to each vehicle? That's a major factor why cars cost so much today because they've got all this tech to make crash tests. So it really does open up a little bit of a can of worms. ANCAP has to tighten its standards, but, yeah, I think there's definitely some room for improvement. Perhaps a bit more industry consultation wouldn't go astray, just to make sure that, you know, we're focusing on the right things here um, for, for, for a consumer perspective. And uh, that's actually a perfect segue into our next story, actually, Michael. The national EV strategy, the government is asking for our say on this. It'll be certainly interesting to see what the results are of this, Jack. Yes, yes. So the federal government has released a consultation paper to help shape the uh, upcoming national electric vehicle strategy. They want to they hear what we have to say. <laughs> um, so the overarching goal of this uh, national EV strategy is to uh, increase the EV uptake in Australia uh, by incentivizing car makers uh, to direct more supply of the low emission vehicles locally. Um, so we can for them more to sell more. Uh, <laughs> the, the goal of this paper in particular, um, the consultation paper, is so, so that Australians can have their say on how the policy settings uh, might encourage local manufacturing of electric vehicles, chargers and other components. Uh, also address the implications of declining fuel excise uh, revenue. And then uh, potentially uh, through uh, through the use of a, a road user charge, and then last of all, and support uh, charging of uh, charging infrastructure rollout. Although there's a, a number of EV re- uh, rebates and t- uh, tax cuts in uh, states and territories already, um, the federal government has also identified there's a lack of coordination and alignment. That's in a quote <laughs> um, for for tax and uh, cuts and rebates. So it wants to try and uh, soothe this. And um, it's also taking, uh, with this paper, it's taking submissions um, until October 31. So get in now and have your say and uh, potentially shape what could be uh, a very big thing in Australia. But I want to know, guys, will this paper help at all? Yes, in short, it will. This is exactly what the industry has been calling for for quite some time now. Um, We are living in a context where EVs are at record numbers in Australia, 4.4% of the market last month, but that's still a lot lower than a lot of other countries around the world. The overarching factor is we don't have a binding emissions reduction scheme. It's Australia, Russia, 
and most of the third world that don't have emissions reduction schemes in place. So we are not in good company when it comes to lacking a very fundamental piece of legislation. The reality is car manufacturers can only make so many EVs and they will send priority allocations to markets where they get fined for having CO2 emissions over a certain amount. As Australia doesn't fit that mould, we get left with some of the old, more inefficient vehicles, hence the dumping ground analogy that has been used. That'll be the main thing that needs to get fixed up by this. But as Jack touched on before, there are so many implications to the rollout of EVs. You cannot support an EV rollout without a cohesive national plan that takes into account the opinions and views of all stakeholders across OEMs that sell cars, charging makers, the aftermarket, etc., etc. This is exactly what's required. This is what the industry has been calling out for for a long time. Not to get too political, but we had quite a long time of inaction, and now the Albanese government looks to be actually moving things forward. Um, so I would strongly suspect that this will turn into a very, very, very detailed properly formatted frameworked emission strategy in 2023 and that will theoretically make the Australian environment much more conducive to having more EVs rolling out. By my count there's about 60 new electric car models due between now and the end of 2023 and uh, we can expect even more and more importantly we can expect actual stock not just token sums of 10 Hyundai Ioniq 5s at a time, but actual significant numbers of EVs and not just Teslas. And that's got to be the goal here, to give people choice, but to also give people options if they do want to go down the EV path. And I'm quite confident that this is the, this is the right way forward and, and, and a good step um, that I'm very supportive of. If you would like to know more about those stories and lots more about this week's news, hit carexpert.com.au. And thank you, Jack Wick. Thanks, Mandy. Well, we got a taster last week about William Stockford's time in Detroit driving the Ford F-150 Lightning and the Mustang Mach-E. And now, since the embargoes have finally dropped, we've got Will back to talk about them in detail. Hello, Will. Hello, Mandy. Let's start with the F-150 Lightning. And, and by the way, I think that's a great name for an EV pickup truck. Um We've always recognised the F-150 as a, as a ute with grunt that makes a lot of noise. Does this still have that grunt? But maybe it's got a lot of grunt. Noise? <laughs> a lot of grunt, <laughs> not a lot of noise. Um, it's actually kind of eerily quiet. Um, it's, it, the cabin is really well insulated and there's, there's v- pretty much no sound to speak of other than that kind of subtle kind of electric vehicle whirr. And you're just picking up the pace so quickly in a vehicle that is that big and that heavy. It's it's just remarkable. So, so exactly how fast is it? Uh, so there's Ford has said that there's uh, zero to sixty mile per hour, so zero to ninety six kilometer hour time in the mid four second range with the larger battery. So the F one fifty Lightning has a choice of ninety eight kilowatt hour or one hundred and thirty one kilowatt hour batteries. So the standard range models have three hundred and thirty seven kilowatts of power and. 1,050 newton meters of torque, uh, which is nothing to sneeze at. (laughs) Extended range models see that power bumped up to 433 kilowatts. And if we're talking range while we're talking batteries, uh, the standard range models have 386 kilometers of range on the EPA test cycle, which is one of the kind of stricter test cycles for electric vehicles. Uh, The extended range models have 515 kilometers unless you step all the way up to the platinum, which has 483 kilometers still quite a bit however you know we have obviously heard reports of that dropping uh 
quite significantly when towing uh, a trailer or carrying a heavy load. So those range figures are, are not always an indicative of what you're going to get based on uh, what you're using the vehicle for. Will, we know that the uh, petrol-powered F-Series is coming to Australia next year, but why did Ford Australia put you behind the wheel of the Lightning in the United States? Are we to take this as a, a sort of sign that we're going to get the Lightning at some point down the line? Because last time I checked, there was like a massive wait list in America that paused orders because they couldn't keep up with the insane amounts of demand. So w- 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 what was what was sort of the rationale behind driving this in the first place? Um, that's a good question. I don't think we can necessarily take from this trip that it has been confirmed for Australia because they put us behind the wheel of this, the Mustang Mach-E, uh, the Shelby GT500, the Explorer Timberline, the Bronco. So a lot of vehicles that have been ruled out, at least for now uh, for the Australian market. There was an e-transit there. That's coming. Um, <laughs> but um, Ford ha- Ford Australia has said it's it's open to expanding the F-150 range, um, but the Lightning has, has not been confirmed for Australia. Uh, I really hope it does eventually, but you're absolutely right. The, the demand for this vehicle is off the charts and they're still ramping up, so, um, ramping up production. Will, I know we don't get the F-150 petrol in Australia just yet, but you're a closet American and familiar with pickup (laughs) trucks. How does the F-150 Lightning feel just in the way that it's built, the way that it's set up behind the wheel relative to the petrol car? Does it feel all that different? No, it doesn't. I mean, the interior looks... I mean, essentially identical. The exterior looks essentially identical. I think Ford has very consciously done this because the the F-Series has been the best-selling vehicle in the US market for, what, well over 30 years. Was it 40 years? I can't remember. Um, and Lord knows they tell us uh, a lot. Um, but I, I think they've made a very conscious effort to make this as familiar as possible. And that's a good thing. You've got all of the F-150 strengths there. You've got a really spacious, comfortable interior. Uh, the technology is fantastic. So um, a lot of the models have that enormous 15.5-inch uh, uh, touchscreen infotainment system, uh, which would be familiar if you've ever sat in a Mustang Mark e um, And, of course, you've got, uh, you know, a, a decent-sized tub as well. But Ford's built on that. Um, with the the transformation of this uh, F-150 to an electric model uh, because getting rid of the engine up front has freed up space for what they call, God, the mega power frunk. It's uh, <laughs> so American. It's such a corny name, but it's genuinely... Um, it's genuinely a selling point for the vehicle because we know a lot of electric vehicles, if they're if the bonnet even opens, uh, this I mean, and, and talking Teslas aside, because Tesla has always been very good at this. I mean, they came up with the term frunk, um, but. Uh, a lot of electric vehicles, if the bonnet even opens, there's, there's really not much space in there. Maybe you've got space for a cable. But f- getting rid of the big V8 or twin turbo V6 or whatever that's usually in the F-150 has freed up a 400-litre dry lockable storage area, which has multiple power outlets, including USB outlets. Um, so Pro and XLT models have a 2.4-kilowatt power onboard setup with two, uh, uh, two uh, sorry, four 120 volt outlets in in the frunk um so 
it's even got a drain as well. So you can effectively use it as an esky. You can use it to charge uh, or, or power tools or when you're at a job site. There's there's a lot of um, a lot of things that you can do with it. Yeah, it sounds super revolutionary on that front, Will, and I'm really glad you touched on it. In fact, that was the question I was about to ask you, and you already answered it before I had the chance to even ask it. So kudos. Luckily <laughs> enough, I have something else that I want to ask, Excellent. which is I get I get asked this a lot by people who who uh, have questions around the rollout of electric commercial vehicles, and that is okay. You talked about the zero to one hundred. You talked about the range, but what happens when you actually use the Lightning as a Ute? What happens when you've got 500 kilos of wood in the back or you've got a three-ton horse float or big boat behind it. What does that do to the performance and range? Did Ford talk at all about how it maintains some semblance of usability when it's actually being used at the upper limit of what it can handle? Uh, not in great detail, but I think Ford also likes to tout the fact that the, the Lightning is is not replacing anything in the F-150 lineup. Um, Ford has said that they're continuing to commit. And in fact, you know, they want to expand um, their internal combustion engines, engines, internal combustion engine presence. Um, So they're not just trying to move very rusted on, dyed in the wool, truck buyers to an electric vehicle. Um, This is merely an expansion of the range. I mean, obviously, you know, with time, um, I'm sure that the US government will eventually uh, introduce some kind of phase out date uh, for electric vehicles. But I think what's interesting about the F-150 Lightning is, you know, there are obviously a lot of people with with current battery technology that are, are not necessarily going to be served by an electric pickup truck. Um, as you said, people that are towing giant horse floats, people that are uh, dry, uh, currently driving yeah, F-Series Super Duty trucks, and they need that that level of capability. Um, I mean, Ford does say that the towing capacity, uh, I can't remember the figure off the top of my head, but the towing capacity is still pretty decent for this, but you're right, range does drop. Um, But I was chatting with um, the chief engineer uh, for the F-150 Lightning program, Linda Zhang, um, and she said, she told me some very interesting figures um, about the F-150 Lightning. She said that one out of two Lightning customers are new to pickup trucks in general. Two out of three are new to Ford and three out of four are new to electric vehicles. So that's a pretty diverse buyer set. I imagine a a lot of those people probably aren't even uh, utilizing the full capability uh, of the F-150 Lightning. At the moment, we don't get the F-150 in Australia, but the Ranger is obviously a huge deal. And based on everything we've heard, everything Ford said, we're expecting an electric Ranger and a plug-in hybrid Ranger at some point in the future. If the F-150 is like a little entree, what do you think the the main course of electric ranger will be like for Australia? And can you see it sort of finding some traction locally? Look, I think every single one of us um, was trying to prize some information out of Ford about an electric ranger, but um, they're super hush-hush about it. Um, hell, they're super hush-hush about a plug-in hybrid ranger. Uh, the We do know that this the frame that the F-150 Lightning uses is, is unique to it. it. It can't be used for a smaller vehicle. Um, but they did say, uh, uh, Linda Zhang did say that a lot of the learnings um, that they've gotten with the F-150 Lightning, can they can naturally apply that to a smaller vehicle. Um, I'd be very curious to see uh, how they, they transform a Ranger into an electric vehicle. Um, if they follow the same kind of uh, 
formula that they have with the F-150 Lightning. I think that would be a pretty compelling truck. Well, let's move on to the uh, other Ford you drove, Will, which was the Mustang Mark E, an electric crossover with basically splashings of the current Mustang styling. Did you like it, Will? That's a really good description for it. That is exactly what it is. It is an electric <laughs> crossover with splashings of, of Mustang styling. Um, look, we had a lot of vehicles at our disposal, but we had, disposable, we had a limited amount of time in which to drive them. Um, but I did spend a good hour or so with the Mustang Mark E and top spec GT guys with the GT performance pack. And I did get some time behind the wheel of a premium as well. Uh, did I like it? Um, I, uh, broadly speaking, yes. Uh, but there are a couple of things that did bother me about it. I'll, I'll start with the good stuff. Um, it looks better in person than it does in photos. Um, it, it has good proportions. It doesn't look like a weird blob like a Tesla Model Y. Um, it kind of fits that same kind of mold as like a Kia EV6 where it's like it's SUV-ish without looking like an SUV. It hides the kind of tall uh, proportions of an SUV quite well. Um, the interior... Uh, when I first saw photos of it, I thought, oh, God, they're just trying to follow that whole Tesla thing with the really minimalist dashboard and the giant screen. Uh, it looks better in person. The material quality is is better than it looks in photos. And Ford's, I mean, Sync 4, I, I, I genuinely like it as, as an infotainment operating system. It's uh, It's got nice graphics. The menus are generally intuitive. Um, and it, it all works pretty well. Um what I didn't like about the vehicle was how it rode. Um, I know Michigan roads are not always the best. Um, they, you know, they get eaten up by road salt and, and, and um, snow plows and whatnot. Um, but uh, look, it rode very, very, very firmly. Um, so we were in um, the GT with a performance package, which comes with Magna Ride, so the magnetoriological dampers. Um, I was expecting it to be smoother. Now, I've heard a similar criticism about the Tesla Model Y. Haven't had a chance to drive one just yet. I was going to borrow Alborz's, but apparently he sold it. <laughs> so, um, but look, it's it's just very, very, very firm. And we weren't even on particularly rough roads. I would love to get some time um, behind the wheel, like some more time behind the wheel. And I say that as well, because this is probably of these two EVs that I drove, the one that's that's most likely to come here uh, sooner. Uh, Ford Australia still has not officially confirmed it, uh, but our understanding is it is coming. Will, the Mustang, along with the way it looks, has always been defined by the meaty kind of character. You sit in it and the V8's burbling away and you're holding a, a heavy steering wheel and it's it's a car, but it's also at risk of sounding like I'm trying to be on TikTok. It's, it's a vibe. <laughs> how, has, how has Ford translated the classic Mustang vibe into the electric era or is the Marquis just an SUV wearing a Mustang badge for the sake of it? Look, it, that's, again, a very, very, very limited drive program. But getting behind the wheel of it, it does feel fun to drive. And not just, oh, not just quick in a straight line, because any EV can do that. I mean, that's just a party trick that they're, that they're pretty much all capable of. Uh, the handling does feel quite balanced. They did... I'm not going to make the same joke about them finding the only curved road in Michigan again. Um, the drive program uh, was not exactly a, a, a drive through Mount Glorious or, or Mulholland Drive or, or whatnot, but uh, it did give us a chance to put it into some slight corners um, and it, it does feel um, 
quite fun to drive. Um, they also have um, these, this, it also has this artificial engine sound um, in unbridled mode. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, but um, it actually sounds quite decent as well. Obviously, nothing is going to replace the beautiful sound of a five-liter Coyote V8. Um, but it, it does have some sound. You know, it has, you know, a good amount of handling ability from from what I was able to tell. Um and it certainly rides firmly, so that sounds like a Mustang to me. Uh, but you're you're absolutely right. It, it is a real. It's like kind of cognitive dissonance, isn't it? To 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 have a something called a Mustang that is an electric SUV. Um, and I know that over the years, Ford has done all manner of, of, of Mustangs. I mean, they've always followed the same kind of formula, coupe or hatchback coupe or convertible. Um, but, you know, you've had naturally aspirated four-cylinder engines. You've had uh, V6s and everything. This is a, an even bigger step away um, from any Mustang previously. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't even owe anything to a Mustang underneath. Like, you know, it, it, it actually has more in relation to a focus underneath because its platform was kind of derived from the C2 platform of, of the focus. Um, so there's some kind of shared hard points. So it kind of, it's, it doesn't feel like a Mustang, but it feels Mustang esque um in in the way that it 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 takes this kind of electric suv formula and tries to make it a a little bit more dynamic and and a little bit more engaging now will i know the only two evs that ford australia has actually officially confirmed for us are the two different transits the transit custom and the transit um but it's pretty much uh, a very badly kept secret that the Mustang marquee is absolutely coming to Australia, even though the company hasn't officially confirmed as much. But is it your read that we could expect to see that potentially in local showrooms in 2023, or is it a little further down the pipeline, do you think? I uh, couldn't really get a steer on that. Uh, it will. It would likely be before 2024. So Ford has previously said, hey, we're going to have five electrified vehicles by 2024. Now, obviously, they've, they've confirmed e-transit. They've confirmed e-transit customers, as you mentioned. Um, that, that does leave Mustang Marquee. Look, it could be sooner, honestly, because if you look, I know they're uh, – I was about to say they're Australian design rules. They're not Australian design rules. Uh, the regulations in New Zealand are a little bit different, but the Mustang marquee has already been confirmed for the New Zealand market. So, I mean, for it to go there and, and not come just a two-hour plane flight away <laughs> would be a little bit crazy. But, uh, look, we should expect to see it um, before 2024. I dare say um, that given it's pretty supply-constrained, um, we shouldn't expect to see it in the same volumes on ships as the Tesla Model Y. I think it would probably likely be more like a, a Kia EV6 or a Hyundai Ioniq 5 in the case that Ford will get as many as they can get. And, you know, if you can get one, you can get one. Um, but, you know, we'll just have to wait and see. What's the space like inside? Uh, look, pretty spacious, pretty comfortable. I mean, it looks kind of like low and, and swoopy looking, yeah. but I can I can comfortably sit in the back. I mean, I'm not Scott Colley tall, but, um, you know, I'm, I'm a normal <laughs> height. Um, so <laughs> um, I could sit in the back and I had plenty of headroom to spare. It's got a big glass roof um, in some variants as well, which is another very Tesla-esque touch. I, I think the, the interior um, 
should be pretty kind of familiar conceptually to anybody that's that's starting a Tesla Model Y. It's there's certainly nothing Mustang esque about the interior. Like mm. it is, it doesn't look. I mean, other than uh, the the badge on the steering wheel, it's nothing <laughs> at all Mustang esque about the interior. We know that the EV world is moving fast in Australia. You've driven. I would say most of them now, Ionic EV6, Lexus UX, which is not really a Mustang rival, I realize. <laughs> when the Mustang does arrive, how do you see it shaping up against those cars and do you think it's appealing to a different type of buyer maybe? <sighs> That's a really good question because – so I think if Ford had introduced just another mid-sized electric SUV without this kind of sporty positioning and this kind of sporty ride and handling tune and, and, and the Mustang design keys, whatever, it might have just kind of uh, – it would have still made an impact, but I don't think it would have made as much of an impact. This car has generated so much attention. Um, a lot of it has been negative because, oh, it's not a Mustang, you know, it's an SUV, it's electric, that's crazy. But a lot of it is positive because there's there are people who are like, oh, wait, I can get an electric SUV that doesn't look like a blob. Um, <laughs> or, or, so I think there's that, that Mustang nameplate. I mean, naturally, it carries so much uh, weight mm. and, and so much kind of prestige in, in buyers' minds. So I think there are... It has the most kind of overtly sporty positioning of any SUV in its segment. That's not to say that it's necessarily the most dynamic. I'd really need to test this back to back with, an e- with say, an EV6. And um, we know the EV6 GT is coming and that's going to just, you know, knock everyone's socks off performance-wise. Um, but I think there's that Mustang name really does carry a lot of um, allure to people. So I, I, th- I think that this would generate a, a lot of attention in, in the local market. However, that's kind of contingent on, on Ford actually getting supply of it. Yeah, indeed. Both of those reviews you can read now at Car Expert. William, stop Ford. Thank you. Thanks, guys. We've been talking about this car for who knows how long, uh, but now we can say we have finally been given the keys to drive on it. 2023 BYD Atto 3 and Moco. You are the one to get behind the wheel. Um, can you give us a quick rundown once again on what is BYD and the Atto 3? Yes, so BYD, another one of these Chinese manufacturers that have come out of seemingly nowhere to launch a competitively priced electric vehicle that most so-called legacy manufacturers can't help or can't hope to compete with, at least at this stage. So BYD, not a very well-known brand in Australia, uh, although there are some BYD electric buses getting around here. Um, But globally, this is actually a massive company. It sold 641,000 electric and hybrid cars globally over the first half of 2022. And across the industry, most analysts see it as the most likely competitor to Tesla. So it supplies its batteries uh, to smartphones, to buses, to a number of OEMs, including Tesla and Toyota, no less. So we talk about this company being a bit of a startup in Australia, but globally, it is actually an enormous, well-respected organisation. It's not imported in Australia by BYD. It's imported here by a middleman called EV Direct. Um, Some companies choose to use an independent distributor. Subaru does too, but this is another example of that, EV Direct, which in turn, and this is where it gets a bit confusing, has done a joint venture with the enormous publicly listed dealer group Eagers. 
So Eagers will run the dealers, the showrooms, the service centres, and EV Direct will handle the online transactions and the importing and distribution of the cars. Then another layer comes on top, which is my car, formerly known as Kmart Tire and Auto, is also an official approved uh, repairer of these vehicles as well to give people a bit more coverage than the inaugural network will offer. So all told, you're looking at it going... Is it a great car let down theoretically by an unknown middleman that we've never heard of before? Kind of remains to be seen. It's too early days. Um, but the vehicle itself and the brand itself are certainly not exactly new. And, and a fun fact, the biggest shareholder of BYD is actually none other than Warren Buffett. Um, he owns about a fifth of wow. the business. So uh, a pretty significant organisation. Scully, uh, I get the sense you've got something you want to add here. A lot of the first attempts we've had from Chinese car makers in Australia uh, have felt like first attempts, early Haviland GWM stuff, early MG stuff, it felt cheap but not necessarily good value, if that makes sense. What's the sense you get from BYD? Does it feel early generation tech or does it feel like a cheaper version of what's available elsewhere? Yeah, so that's a great place to start. Um, It actually feels very resolved and it feels very, very good. Um, this is a car designed from the get-go for global markets. So Australia is often a testbed for Chinese brands. We're a wealthy Western country that has tastes that are easily applied to the United States or Europe, but we're quite small. No one really cares about us, and we're geographically much closer to China than lots of other places. So it's an ideal starting point for these Chinese brands in their early incarnations to bring some of their, I suppose, less appealing products to market and see how they go. But the Addo 3 is an example of a car designed for Europe, designed for Japan, designed for America, all over the globe. Um, And it really does show. So it's built from the ground up on a bespoke EV platform. Um, It's got 800 volt charging. It's got lithium ion phosphate batteries made in-house by BYD. It's got its own semiconductors made in-house by BYD. Um, And it feels like a very cohesive package. Possibly the most uh, emblematic aspect of that is inside the cabin, which is definitely a polarising looking interior. It's a mishmash of blues and reds and creams. It's got all sorts of strange shapes and sort of design touches for the sake of them. It's kind of a little bit like a mini in some ways where it's there's a lot going on and it's going to polarise. But it actually feels extremely well made. The quality is very, very good. Like I'm talking as good as any Japanese or Korean car in terms of fit and finish and build quality and the use of materials. And the technology is particularly good. So it's got a 12.8-inch Android touchscreen that is extremely fast, and it also rotates 90 degrees, which is an interesting novelty. So you can have it in portrait or in landscape. But it's the -the over-the-air compatibility that really made me sort of sit up and pay attention. When I picked this car up, it was a crying shame that it had this gorgeous screen. And I I genuinely mean it is one of the best touchscreens I've ever seen in any car full stop. it had, no na- it had no navigation, it had no Spotify integration, and uh, it, it, aside from having an incredibly crisp camera, it had almost nothing in it. And then a few days later, I downloaded an over-the-air update through the car's 4G connection, so no Wi-Fi, and suddenly I had all of those features, as well as Mercedes MBUX-style conversational voice control to operate the air conditioning and the sunroof and all sorts of things. Now, only really Tesla has been doing that up till now. You know, you can't do that in Toyota or a Ford or a Mazda, not in Australia anyway, but you can with this BYD that no one's ever heard of. This gives you an idea of how advanced this this company really is. Um, It is doing the sorts of things that Tesla did quite some time ago for a lot less money. The interior feels up to scratch, but obviously driving is another thing. 
does BYD's experience in making electric cars and batteries shine through when you hit the road? In some ways, yes, and other ways, no. So the ba- there are two different battery options available. So I-, I probably should address that. There are two models that you can buy. There's the short range and there's the long range. Short range costs $44,300 before on roads, three grand more for the long range, another three grand or so for on-road costs, which you can then offset by getting the state rebate, Victoria, New South Wales, Queensland, all eligible for $3,000 rebates. So you're looking at about 50 grand drive away, give or take for the one that we tested, which is finished in rather fetching uh, blue sort of turquoise paint, which makes it about the same price as a Honda HRV hybrid or a top of the range Mazda CX-30, just to give you a bit of an indication. Now I've got that out of the way. Yes, uh, it, it drives quite well in terms of refinement. Um, it's, the one that I had had a lithium iron phosphate battery with 60 kilowatt hours of capacity, feeding a 150 kilowatt and 310 newton meter permanent magnet synchronous motor. Um, and the battery is quite interesting. It's a BYD blade battery. It's an in-house battery design. Um, and it's the only battery that I know of that has ever actually passed the nail penetration test without overheating and going into thermal runaway and exploding. So very, very <laughs> safe as far as batteries go. Um, 480 Ks is the NEDC claimed driving range, 420 on the WLTP, which is tighter. I did 400 Ks. Um, I also did 270 kilometres, averaging 110 k an hour, driving out to my family farm and back in Gippsland with 30% charge remaining, suggesting about a 350k range just doing highway driving is achievable without any brake energy recuperation on tap. So the range for a $50,000 EV, the range is excellent. So too is the refinement. Very, very quiet and refined. Only a little bit of wind noise through the pillars was really noticeable. The ride, the suspension is very softly sprung, like a lot of Chinese products tend to be. So it floats and it irons out corrugations and expansion joints and things like that quite well. Um, the brakes, the handover point between the uh, brake energy recuperation system and the mechanical braking is very well done. It's quite touchy, a bit like a Volkswagen is, very strong brakes. But once you adjust, quite good. I would like to see a one-pedal driving system fitted, though. The brake energy recuperation has two settings, and neither of them are really very strong at all. I I quite like having that real resistance that you get with a sort of more advanced um, kinetic energy recuperation system. So that's something that I think you could look at doing. In terms of charging, the peak charging rate I saw on a DC charger was 90 kilowatts. And I added 50.1 kilowatt hours of energy over a 45-minute charge, which basically filled it up in 45 minutes. So not bad as far as that's concerned, not Tesla quick, not Taycan quick, but but certainly relatively rapid. The claim zero to 100 to 7.5 seconds or 7.3 seconds, I should say. I did 7.5 on the first try. So that certainly seems quite accurate to me. There are some elements that do let it down though. The tyres, um, Atlas Batman tyres is the brand. Uh, I'm not making that up. Uh, um, (laughs) It's a Chinese tyre brand. Atlas tyres goes back a long way. It wasn't always Chinese, but it is these days and they're crap. Uh, BYD has really saved a few pennies by fitting these tyres. They chirp, they squeal off the line, they lose traction. They're just not very good. We actually had a commenter in my review jump in and say that um, they changed them out for, I believe, some Continentals off the top of my head. But I think that's something that I'd be looking at doing. I'd be going to my local tyre shop and I'd be getting four new hoops put on stat. (laughs) Um, There's also a little bit of room for improvement with the dynamic tune, particularly with the the way the suspension catches on rebound. Um, There's quite a bit of body roll. Uh, through corners. It doesn't feel all that agile or wieldy. Um, The steering is very, very vague and you feel quite isolated from what's going on. So I would like a little bit more driver involvement fed in. These are the sorts of fine tuning aspects that you get when you have a lot of engineers working on a vehicle. But 
kind to be honest with you, I don't think a lot of people will notice how it performs in corners. They'll be more fascinated by the technology and the price. Um, so by and large, relatively impressive with a few areas of improvement as far as the drive goes. Moco, while we're talking about some of the components, I, I had a drive in the Addo 3 as well. And the other thing I noticed were the wiper blades. Um, sounds like a really small thing, but if you're a neat freak like me, I, I use the screen wash all the time. And obviously when it's raining, it's a safety issue. Um, for a brand new car to have sort of wiper blades that judder and jump across the screen was really disappointing. Thankfully, it's a cheap mm-hmm. fix, but it's another example of where BYD feels like it's maybe held back and a few extra pennies would have made the car feel even more resolved. Yeah, I think that's quite true. Um, and there are a few other areas where I, I, I wasn't super up with it. There's no Android Auto or Apple CarPlay. However, another over-the-air update is scheduled for late October, early November, which is designed to nip that in the bud. Having seen how effective the V1.02 update was, I can easily believe that it will do what was promised. Um, I also think that the ownership side of things is still a bit of an unknown quantity. Um, There's been a bit of criticism around the warranty, which has quite a few conditions attached. There was some criticism of the service prices, which EV Direct then cut. Um, but it's still not the cheapest car in the world to maintain. And there's also no ANCAP crash rating as yet. Now, BYD says it's working with Euro ANCAP, which will feed over to ANCAP, and um, we'll get that result quite soon. But as it stands, we don't actually know how it crashes, and that is obviously quite important. The manufacturer certainly claims that it's engineered to be a maximum five-star car, but we don't know that for sure yet. But these all do strike me as relatively uh, easy-to-navigate issues moving forward. So with all of that in mind and with call it forty-five dollars or $50,000 burning a hole in your pocket, would you recommend the BYD over an MGZS EV, which at the moment is the, the best cheap electric vehicle you can buy in Australia? So yeah, uh, that's a really good question. Obviously, the two Chinese EVs are the two cheapest on sale. The MGZS EV just launched an updated form from $44,990 drive away. Um, now, that car in some ways has features that the BYD doesn't get. For example, it's sold by a well-recognised manufacturer with a factory-backed distributor with 83 dealerships all trained up to service it. They'll sell you a wall box for two grand and fit it for you. It's got a seven-year condition-free warranty attached. There are a lot of those sort of hurdles that MG has removed in a way that I suppose EV Direct and BYD perhaps is yet to do. But as a product, the BYD is significantly better. It's got more range, about 100 Ks more range in the MG. It's got a bigger interior, so it's got a completely flat floor and back seats that, you know, I'm, I'm six foot four, 194 centimetres, and I could easily fit behind my own driving position. So it's got that covered. It's got reach adjustable steering, unlike the MG. The interior quality is significantly better. It actually feels extremely well built in terms of materials and fit and finish. The touchscreen is 100 light years ahead of the MG system, unfortunately. And, and again, I'm not necessarily criticising the MG here because I think the MG is a really good, basic, honest, affordable EV. But it kind of shows that the Addo 3 is actually something else. It's a genuinely accomplished, high-tech, excellent EV, almost irrespective of price. And the fact that it is so affordable, as I said, it's the same price as a Honda HRV hybrid. Yeah, the brand isn't as widely recognised, but you can plug this one into your house and charge it overnight. You can't do that with the Honda. Um, I think we have a look at what BYD has got coming down the pipeline. It's got a new sedan coming at the end of this year that's a Model 3 rival. It's got a 
35 to $40,000 light electric hatchback launching. It's already sold a ton of them to a company called Splend that does uh, rideshare loans to, to Uber drivers and things of that ilk. So I think as a company, it's an incredibly exciting development for the Australian industry. And the 803 impressed me a lot. Um, I think it's only going to get stronger from here. And uh, it definitely made a first impression that a lot of Chinese brands haven't been able to do with their early iterations. You touched on it before, Scully. This doesn't feel so rough around the edges like some of its competitor products. And at the price, I mean, you look at some other potential prospective competitor EVs, and Nissan Leaf, say, starts at 53 grand drive away with 270Ks range and a much older interior. So that's already looking, you know, probably not quite as good on paper. Hyundai Kona Electric is 60 grand these days for the for the standard range. I tell you, it makes a pretty good argument for itself. It really does. Um, I walked away quite impressed, and I can easily see why. They've already sold thousands of them, and um, they're all on ships as we speak, and we have photo evidence of exactly that. So good on EV Direct. I doubted them. I, I sort of thought maybe there was a bit of snake oil selling going on in the very early days because um, it sounded too good to be true. But on first impressions, they actually have delivered something quite excellent. Michael, did you get any curious people asking about the car during the time you were driving it? Absolutely. Um, and it's always when you're charging. So you go to a... Ah, I've got a of course. I've got a Charge Fox DC charger bank near me. Um, now, a lot of the time they're not working, Tritium and Charge Fox, just in case you're listening, make your bloody things more reliable. Um, half of them weren't working when I last went, and that seems to be quite a common refrain, but I digress. Um, whenever you do go to a fast charging station, obviously people who choose to buy EVs at this point in time are pretty devoted to them because they're such a niche product. So everybody knew what it was. I had somebody in an EQA, somebody in an XC40, somebody in a Model 3, uh, another person in a new iX from BMW. I had a number of people come up to me actually and ask questions about it, kick the tyres, ask me how it went. I had a guy in an MGZS ask me a lot of questions about it. I even saw somebody who actually had a BYD on order who wanted to have a look in person too. So it's funny, I, I wasn't feeling particularly sociable. I was a bit tired and I wasn't really in the mood for a chat. And I just couldn't avoid it because everybody wanted to talk to me uh, and find out about this car. Um, I think in the EV world, it is definitely raising eyebrows and people are really looking at it long and hard. Um, and I suspect a lot of the people that uh, saw it are probably not going to have their minds changed. Hmm. Uh, which car expert rating did you give it? I gave it an 8 out of 10. And uh that is a, a higher rating than I probably expected to give it going. And I'm always a bit cautious and conservative with my launch ratings, but, you know, it falls over in some areas, particularly handling and cost of ownership. But overall, bloody impressive car and 8 out of 10 felt like the, the right score to give it. And that review is at the site now if you want to go and check it out. And that brings an end to this week's podcast. Have we got any cool cars coming up next week, Marco? Nah, they're all boring. <laughs> No, no, we've got great cars. We always do. Um, yeah. No less than the Nissan Z, and it's got a six-speed manual and three pedals, which oh. is exactly as it should be. So I will be stealing that off you, Scott, for at least one night. Um, <laughs> we've got the Cupra Ateca VZX. Uh, we're really enjoying getting through that new Cupra product range. Ford Everest Sport, um, the most popular variant of that new highly anticipated SUV. MGZS EV in essence spec level, top of the range, guys. Then up in Sydney, we've got a Volkswagen California 6.1 Beach. So that's a nice little camper van for Tony to go surfing in. A Kia EV6 GT line, a Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid Aspire. 
and an Audi RS3 sedan as well. So a really nice spectrum of cars for us all to get through. The only challenge is finding the time to write about all of them. What about launches, Scully? Where are we going? Uh, yeah, Will is off to Sydney to drive the Citroen C5X, which will be quite interesting. It's another quirky SUV from Citroen. And then next week, James and I are off to drive different things. I'm doing the Mercedes EQB in Melbourne, another electric SUV from Merck. And James is driving the hotly anticipated Toyota Corolla Cross. Ooh, fantastic. Well, if you do have any feedback for us, as always, podcast at carexpert.com.au. I'm going to say your name first, Scully. Thank you, Scott Colley. And Thanks, Mandy. What a win that is. <laughs> <laughs>